But first, we start with some of the major changes being announced to the rebate program for purchasing an electric vehicle here in British Columbia. Are you in the market for an EV or a hybrid vehicle? Do you still qualify for the provincial rebates? I've got Cabinet Minister Bruce Ralston standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. This is John Stonier, who is the president of the Electric Vehicle Owners Association. He's been a past guest here on this show. He said people love their EVs. They love these rebates. Have a listen here. It's a very sweet deal to have an electric car. And uh, these electric car owners today are all silently smiling. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Bruce Ralston. He's the cabinet minister in charge of the program. Minister, thanks for coming on today. I know. It's great to be on. Okay, let's talk about the changes here now. So, the, the, first of all, the good news here is the rebate is going up. It was 3000 It's going up, right? How much is it now? It's going to go up to 4000 uh, Right. So that's, uh, that's an improvement. Uh, and then the, the, the main focus is uh, there'll be some income testing. So up to... Uh, 80,000 individual income or 125,000 household income, you'll be eligible for the rebate. And then it tapers off. And after uh, 100,000 for an individual or 165,000 for a household, uh, you won't, you'll no longer be eligible. So it's, it's focused more on the the people that uh, we feel need the the rebate uh, a little bit more. Right. Okay. So if you're making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, no rebate now, right? N- right. Zero. No okay. provincial, no provincial rebate. That's correct. Right. Okay. You can still get some federal rebates, so. though. Right. Oh. Okay. Why are you doing that? Well, we what we uh, what we want to focus on is uh, the the people um, middle income, lower in- income that might uh, want to buy an EV and probably need the assistance more than someone. It's uh, it'll be the top ten percent of income earners that would no longer be eligible. Right? Are there concerns? I can certainly understand that. I mean, I've heard lots of stories about mm-hmm. you know people who are wealthy snapping up expensive high end EVs, Teslas, whatever, mm-hmm. and and then banking this this cash from the government when they probably you know clearly don't need the money. Is that your concern? Like that rich people were sort of soaking up these rebates? Well, I think what we, uh, I think in order to get the market started, I mean, there's room for everyone in a new and emerging market, but there's 85,000 EVs out there. And so we want to grow uh, the the transition of the fleet from uh, over. And, and we really, that's where the bulk of uh, income earners are. And so we want to help those people uh, if they can, if they're thinking about uh, switching over to an EV and that that's the focus of the, of the program. So, I think it's, uh, you mentioned John Stonia, uh, very yeah. enthusiastic, but this aspect of it, he, he did support as well. Yes, and is the program, though, designed to be an assistance to people who are sort of lower income, or is it designed to get as many people as possible into an electric vehicle? Because I'm just wondering if if you cut off higher income earners from any sort of rebate, do you not risk that those those high wage earners might say, well, forget it then. I'm just going to buy, I'm going to buy a gas-powered vehicle instead. Yeah, I, I kind of, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the advantage is uh, certainly, and uh, I don't really want to get into a long debate on gas prices, Mike, but uh, in the present environment, having an EV is, uh, just saves you so much. The, the other long-term effect is that 
maintenance costs on an EV are, are lower. Uh, and so um, you, you, you save money two ways there in, in the long run. And so I, I don't see people foregoing that, uh, that, that, that those savings uh, simply because they don't get the, the rebate at the very top end. What percentage of people would be out of luck here now if they want to buy a, an EV but they no longer qualify for the full rebate? Well, I think about 90% of income earners will be able will still be eligible, uh, and uh, 10% at the at the top will, will not. 10%. Okay, so it's 10% yeah. of the market here will have no will have no rebate, but but you well, figure that, you know, those people, those 10 percenters there would still be anxious. They they still want to buy an electric vehicle anyway. Is what you're is what you're so. arguing? I think okay. so. I think so. That's what uh, that's. I mean, anecdotally, that's what uh, what what we hear. And uh, we we really want to focus the program on uh, on the pe- people who uh, want to get into the EV market. And uh, so, it's for um, moderate incomes who would benefit most from the financial support. What is the market like out there for these vehicles? Because I've talked to lots of people who would love to get into an electric vehicle or a hybrid, but they can't find one or they're on a waiting list for one because they're in such short supply. What are you hearing about that? Exactly that. Uh, I mean, supply chain issues and, and, uh, and the popularity uh, of EVs. Last, uh, in the last uh, January to March of this year, uh, 17% of the vehicles sold were EVs. And, and British Columbia is leading uh, North America, really competitive with uh, uh, California and Quebec, who are two other leading jurisdictions, for the number of people that are purchasing EVs. So it's, uh, we're, I mean, the other thing that the government is doing to encourage that, people, when they buy an EV, they want to know that they'll be able to charge it. So we're Investing in the charging network through BC Hydro and municipalities, federal government has a program. There are private charger charging companies as well. Uh, there's there are rebates for having a charger at your at your house. There are rebates for having a uh, your Strata Corporation. If you live in a condo, they can make an application uh, to uh, to get some rebates to uh, put in some charging stations at your uh, condominium building. So well. Um, we're, speak- we're, uh, we're, we're trying to encourage the transition in every way we can. Right. Well, speaking of that, I know that there are people who are frustrated if they're living in a, in a condo and maybe their, their local strata council mm-hmm. would not, will not allow recharging stations in, in, their, in their unit or, or the building where they live. I've talked to people who are renters saying that their landlord won't let them put in a charging unit. In the home. Let me play another clip here for you from John Stonier, Electric Vehicle Owners Association, on this point. Then I'll get your thoughts. Here it is. Condos are your opportunity right now. If you can't buy a car, get your condo or your landlord, your rental apartment landlord, to get going on the EV infrastructure. It's going to pay off with dividends in the end. Yeah. So he's saying, like, go talk to your strata, talk to your landlord, and mm-hmm. say, look, let me let me put a charging station in here. Do you agree with them? Like, is, is that what people should do, just advocate for themselves, or is there something the government can do to make this happen? No, we, we, there is a program. I mean, there First, the, uh, the this first step is you, you need an electrical assessment of the electrical capacity of your building, and there's there's a support for that. And then the condominium association has to make the application. But there are uh, rebates per unit, um, 
So generally, they would want to do a number, not simply one for an individual unit. Uh, yeah. And we're, we're trying to encourage that. And uh, there's a lot of interest in that program. And, uh, and I'm interested in uh, expanding that. But uh, it, it's, it's uh, John is right. It's, uh, it's a huge opportunity because there's, I think, 1.5 million people in British Columbia live in condominiums. So that is, right. uh, that's a big area to, uh, to bring about change. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks very much, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the van life movement now. Have you heard about this? People who decide to ditch traditional housing, live in an RV, mobile home, or a a van instead. Now, you might remember this was the subject of the Oscar-winning movie Nomadland a couple of years ago when Best Picture And one of the people who was featured in that film was a real-life nomad. His name is Bob Wells. People may be familiar with him. He's got a YouTube channel called Cheap RV Living and a website where he has hundreds of thousands of followers. He's kind of like one of the gurus of of the van life, and he played himself in the movie Got Sarah Fleetwood standing by to discuss this. But first, have a have a listen to this. This is Bob Wells, one of the godfathers of the the van life movement, and he was a guest on an earlier show. And here he is talking about why he decided to live in a van. Have a listen to this. First, there was a real sense of shame. You know, society tells us what life is supposed to look like for each of us. In America, we call it the American dream, but it's I'm sure it's similar in Canada that you you uh, you go to college, you get an education, you find a career, you get married, you have kids, you have a house with a white picket fence and you work there for the rest of your life. And then you retire in the golden years. And that was the American dream, as I know it. And I found out for me, it was a nightmare. I didn't know there was any other choice. But when I was forced into another choice, I discovered that was the one that really made me happy. Okay, that was Bob Wells talking about his van life on an earlier show. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Sarah Fleetwood. Sarah is a PhD candidate at UBC. She's based in Vancouver. And yeah, she has lived the van life too. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming on. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Did you see that movie, Nomad Land, a couple of years ago? Yeah, I did. Yeah, what did you what did you think of that? Like, did that have any influence on your uh, your decisions to try the van life yourself? I actually just watched it a couple of weeks ago, so uh, <laughs> yeah, it didn't really have an influence back then. But um, I mean, I can definitely uh, relate to some of the things that were shown in that movie. Yeah. Let's let's talk about your own journey here, Sarah. So tell me about your van life experience. Yeah, so it started where I was working at an outdoor gear company, um, but I wanted to travel and see more of North America. And so my partner and I uh, started by converting a Ford Transit van and then using that and traveling around the country. And while we did it, we also worked full time. Um, and then in the evenings, we'd go off into the mountains or by the ocean and surf. Oh, wow. Okay. So what kind of vehicle d- were you guys living in? Uh, it was a Ford Transit. So a lot of people are familiar with Sprinter vans, but it's a pretty similar thing to that. So. Well, and was it, you know, how roomy was it for you? Could you describe it? Like, how did you have it set up? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so it had a high roof, so you could stand inside, um, but it was short enough that you could fit in a parking spot. Um, and so the whole back is basically a kitchen, but then the middle is a couch that converts into a bed. So we basically designed this whole thing and then built it, and uh, it worked out quite well for us. Wow. And how long were you living in there in the van? Uh, about two years. So you're not living there anymore, though? No, not currently. Uh, I live in Vancouver, um, yeah. just working on my PhD here. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. What made you decide to do that? Uh, to pursue the PhD, I guess. No, to live in, um, no, to live in your van. Oh, okay. Um, I guess for me, I just really enjoy the outdoors, and I like simplicity in life, Um which the van, as you can imagine, you have to narrow down the number of things you have to a very small amount. Um, and so I thought the van would enable basically more exploration in my life because mm. I guess another thing I personally enjoy doing is surveying and mapping unexplored caves. Um, oh. So pretty much everything I do is fueled around exploration. Right. And you decided to, to do this even though you had, like, you were on a career path, like a corporate career path at the time, correct? Yeah. Tell me, tell um, me about that. Like, if when you've got like a successful career path going, and then you decide to wait, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on the road and live in a van. Like, what, what? Tell me about that process. Hmm. Yeah. Um. I mean, it was definitely a little bit different from a little surprising to my family when I said I wanted <laughs> to do that. Um. <laughs> And, uh, but for me, I guess, I think people can get very fixated on the end goals in life um, versus kind of all the in-between. And um, so there was a lot that I hadn't seen before that I wanted to see. Um, yeah. And I thought that would enable it. And I also kind of long-term wanted to deviate a little bit from what I was doing at that company to more biomaterials. Yeah. Um, so switching to more... Um, biodegradable type materials yeah yeah speaking of sarah fleetwood and her experience with the van life she's a ubc phd student now um so what your decision to do this it wasn't out of economic necessity like i've talked to some people who have decided to live in in a van not because you know they wanted to commune with nature or as an adventure or whatever but they just couldn't afford anything else like like bob wells the guy we just played the clip of there you know, this was a guy who was down on his luck. He didn't have much money, and it was basically all he could afford. But that wasn't your situation. That wasn't your situation. There's lots of people who do this, and they've got different different uh, motivations for it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, definitely not my situation economically. I mean, as you yeah. said, I had a full-time job and everything, and um, in this process, I had saved up quite a bit of money, um, which kind of enabled some risk during the whole van process um, of doing pursuing something different that may not make me as much money. Yeah. Um, and what was it? What was it like living in the van for two years? Uh, I personally really loved it. I would say it's definitely not for everyone. Um, for me, it just enabled need to basically be in the places I wanted to be in every single day. But that said, there were also a lot of challenges like um, living, sleeping in sub-freezing temperatures and, for example, one day being on a work call and looking down the road and seeing a forest fire coming towards us. Oh. Um, 
So things like that, you know, not not something everyone wants to deal with in their day to day. But um, that said, it also uh, enables a lot of things that you just can't do when you have a job in a specific location and are um, have to be there every single day. Yeah, yeah. And did you give you to give you like a sense of freedom that you didn't have before? Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, just being able to be in a new spot as often as you want to be um, was really nice for us. Yeah. Speaking of Sarah Fleetwood, her van life experience. So, uh, Sarah, I know that you're you've got your own business going, right? Like you've got a. Tell me about your business that you're running and how the how the van life kind of influenced your career your uh, business path here yeah so alpha lotus is the company Mm. that i've been working on starting um out of some research i had been doing in the lab so essentially it is um you're probably you probably own a ring jacket um Mm. but what you might not know is these have a dark side called pfcs and those are ending up in the water you drink and the food you eat so at alpha lotus we've developed a plant-based alternative called alpenshield which basically um, replaces those coatings and can be used on things such as rain jackets, shoes, cotton shirts, or boots. Um, so you basically don't have to choose between performance and environment on these types of coatings. Okay, well, that's very exciting uh, career path for you, for sure. Like, Do you think that your experience living on the road or living in the van for two years, did that in- influence your your business path, too? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I think it really gave me time to think about what I wanted to do moving forward. So um, for me, I really wanted to switch to something that was creating a greater impact for society. Um, And so one way I see of doing that is developing products that are um, basically greener. uh, And so people can basically have alternative options to what's already out there that may be causing harm to them or to the environment. Right. Did you, when you were out there on the road for two years living in your van, did you meet a lot of other people who were doing the same thing? Like if people have seen that film Nomadlands, they may, they may know that it was really about a, like a community of people who were doing the same thing. You know, it was almost like a tribe of people who were living on the road, living in their van did you have did you make any contacts with other people who were also living living the van life over those two years? Yeah, occasionally we'd run into people um, just in some of the things we were doing or just wherever we were sleeping um, that were also traveling around in vans um, and sometimes we'd spend some time talking to them, uh, which was always nice yeah but we also i guess um kind of had our own community around the U.S. that we would occasionally stop and visit along the way, um, whether it was meeting up with them in the outdoors or visiting them where they were living and cooking for them and spending time with them. Yeah, how many... You traveled around a lot, right? Like, where, where, where did you travel in the U.S. again? Where did you go? Mostly in the West um, yeah. because I'm from the East, and so that's why I wanted to see more of so Arizona, New Mexico, California, Washington. I mean, most of the States, um, we weren't necessarily trying to hit them all just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you think like I was, this was like a big trend. Like when that movie came out a couple of years ago, there was a lot of focus on people who were doing this. And do you think that there's still kind of, uh, 
a van life movement? Like, are a lot of people still getting into it or getting interested in it? Because, you know, I'm just wondering if some people try it and then just say, you know what, this is not for me. Like you mentioned, this is not for everyone. Like it's not, it sounds kind of idyllic and wonderful, but I know it must be tough too, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely romanticized on the internet a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, for me, I absolutely love it and would happily go back to it. But I think for a lot of people, they do try it and they realize that all of these struggles that do come with it and discomfort some they may not be so happy with uh, and eventually go back to um, uh, living in a house or an apartment. And that's totally fine too. It's good to realize what you personally value and like. Yeah. Yeah. I I like the way you described it has been kind of romanticized to an extent. And I, I agree because I've talked to people who have said, you know what? It's not easy. You know, it's not easy living this life, even though it may seem idyllic, carefree, it's difficult. Like, what would you say are the, some of the more challenging parts of living in a van for two years? Yeah, um, I think one of it's really small, maybe, but one of the <laughs> biggest challenges is if you want to move um, from one spot to another location, you have to clean up everything in the van really nicely, clean you know, clean everything before you put it away, um, which like you do in a house, but not to the same degree, and that's just so that. The van stays clean and uh, is less damaged over time. And, um, you know, and so having to put all these little things away can, you know, get tedious after a while. Or in our case, we have um, water filtration in our van um, and we also have solar. But, you know, so in the winter with the solar, uh, you may not have enough sunlight. Um, So I was actually doing like the first semester of my Ph.D. from the van. Um, uh-huh. and I had a final the next week and then all of our power went out uh, and we had to solve that. Um, so just kind of some struggles like that. Yeah, it's not easy. That's for sure. All right. Welcome back. A few minutes uh, more with my guest, Sarah Fleetwood, co-founder of Alpha Lotus. And she went from the corporate life to the van life. She lived with her partner, in a renovated Ford Transit van for two years. Do you still have the van, Sarah? Oh, yeah. And actually, um, sometimes I still do use it, but just not um, not so frequently. So where, where are you guys living now? In Vancouver, uh, right? Just in, yeah, in Vancouver. So do you miss the road? Do you think Do you think you and your partner go back to living in the van at some point? Or is that it? Uh, I think very likely we would go back to it at some point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So even though it was even though it was tough and even though it was challenging, you you still would go back, even though you're on this career path, successful career path, you'd still be willing to go back to living in the van. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, maybe not, you know, next year, but maybe yeah. eventually someday in the future. Okay. Tell me about your, tell me a little bit more about your, your Alpha Lotus and where can people get more information about your, uh, your company there? Yeah. So, uh, for Alpha Lotus, you can go to alpenshield.com. Alpenshield is just the product name, um, for the plant-based coating. Right. And, and, and are you, are you selling your products now or are you, are they still in development? Like where are you at with it? Still in development, so you can click a pre-order link on the website um, yeah. if you want to be one of the first to receive it. But yeah, you can't quite purchase it yet. 
Okay, Sarah, thanks for coming on to tell your story today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner yesterday and her conviction yesterday in a Russian court for drug possession, sentenced to nine years in jail after Russian authorities said they found cannabis oil in her luggage at the airport in Moscow. Nine years in jail for cannabis oil. This follows a politically charged trial the tensions between Russia and the United States, of course, over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Talk this morning now of a high-stakes prisoner exchange between these two world powers. Brittany Griner, 31 years old, two-time Olympic champion basketball player, eight-time All-Star with the Women's NBA League. Have a listen to this. I got David Salvo standing by. Have a listen to Brittany Griner here speaking to the court in in Moscow. Now, this was a bleak picture here. She's standing in the courtroom. It looks like a jail cell, almost like a cage in the courtroom as she addressed the court. Here's what she had to say. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling that it doesn't end my life here. I never meant to hurt anybody. I never meant to put in jeopardy the rest of the population. I know everybody keeps talking about political pawn and politics, but I hope that that is far from this courtroom. Hey, Brittany Griner addressing that Russian court. Let's discuss this now with my guest, David Salvo from the Alliance for Securing Democracy. David is a former State Department Foreign Services officer, and he's an expert on Russian foreign policy, and I'm pleased to welcome him. David, thank you for coming on today. Great to be with you, Mike. Hey, nine years in jail for Brittany Griner. What did you think of that sentence? I mean, it's it's sad, but it's unsurprising, to be honest. I mean, here we there's been negotiations about a prisoner exchange. And, you know, the details are out in the open. The Russians want to maximize their leverage. So it's no surprise to me that they gave her as, as long of a sentence as they did. Yeah. What will it mean for her? I mean, it sounds like there's stuff happening behind the scenes here, clearly uh, on a prisoner exchange to bring her home. But what what would she otherwise be facing there? I mean, nine years. Can you imagine that nine years in a Russian jail? What, what, what kind of jail would she be in over there? Like a like a gulag or what? It's pretty bad. I, as someone who's been to Russian jails to check on the welfare of American citizens, I could tell you it's it's not a happy place to be. Um, you know, I don't think she would be particularly mistreated, uh, especially given her celebrity status. And, you know, as a as a woman's basketball star in the city of Ekaterinburg, where she plays, I can tell you that she's popular. Her team wins championships. Um, so I don't think she'd be the particular target of any mistreatment. But that doesn't mean that nine years in a Russian jail is, is a great place to be. It's just it's it's really it's it's a hardship. Yeah. Is there any doubt in your mind that this was it's almost like hostage diplomacy here i mean the the russians want to get one of their people back who's in jail in the united states we got the war we got the war in ukraine i mean is is she kind of a victim of circumstance here or a political pawn she is i mean i honestly believe that she she would have been arrested regardless of the political circumstances because she she is a celebrity and 
you know, she ostensibly broke the law, so the Russians would have tried to make an example. But the political circumstances, unfortunately, make it even that much more complicated. Uh, I, I mean, I believe that she is the victim right now of hostage diplomacy. The, we, the United States, have in our custody Victor Boot, who's a convicted arms trafficker. The Russians have long wanted him to come home. And so, you know, Brittany's arrest is extremely timely to try to uh, expedite those, those, those negotiations. Right. Speaking to David Salvo, Alliance for Securing Democracy, nine years in jail for basketball star Brittany Griner. That was the sentence yesterday in Russia. And as you mentioned, David, negotiations appear to be underway here for some sort of a, a very high level prisoner exchange. It would be Brittany Griner being traded potentially for this convicted Russians arms dealer, Victor Boot, as you mentioned. There's also another American uh, who is imprisoned in a Russian labor camp named Paul Whalen, who may be part of the deal here. Let's listen to this here. This is from uh, NBC News. This is David Whalen here. You're going to hear Paul Whalen's brother hoping that his, his brother will come home as part of this prisoner swap. Let's have a listen and I'll get your thoughts. While Griner's case has been in the public eye, Whelan's family is anxious to get him home, too, and hopeful about this latest news. It shows that the U.S. government is doing what it can uh, and also underscores, I think, the fact that there are limits to what the U.S. government can do to bring home Americans. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he will discuss the deal with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, in the next few days. It will be the first conversation between the two since Russia invaded Ukraine. I plan to raise an issue that's a top priority for us. The release of Americans Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner, who've been wrongfully detained and must be allowed to come home. Okay, here the Secretary of State there. And just in this morning, we're hearing from Russian officials, David, that they're apparently open to a deal. What's your read of the situation here right now? Well, Secretary of State Blinken, he's a good man and a good diplomat. I worked for him a few years ago, but he's in a tough spot here. And that's because the Russians have the leverage. They know that... uh, you know, Brittany is someone who, you know, the entire American people are sort of rallying around right now. And there's enormous pressure on the Biden administration to bring her home. So the Russians are going to try to maximize this deal. Yeah, they want Victor Boot home, but they might also prolong these negotiations to try to get others home. I hope Paul Whelan is part of this deal. He absolutely deserves to come home, too. I know we often forget about him when we're talking about Brittany because she's a celebrity. But I, I, I'm, I'm confident that we will bring those two home, but it's probably going to take some more time. And I imagine Russia will try to get even more than just Victor Boot as part of this deal. Yeah, Victor Boot, like who is this guy? Like you mentioned, he's a convicted arms dealer. He's been nicknamed the Merchant of Death. What, what do we know about this guy? He's just a freewheeling arms dealer who's who's sent sold arms to pretty much every conflict you can imagine in the world, even sometimes working on both sides of the conflict with the FARC. You know, we the United States arrested him on the pretense that he armed the FARC and the FARC then used those weapons to uh, kill Americans. Uh, But he's just a notoriously bad guy and, you know, has connections to Russian military intelligence, which is, again, why uh, the Russian government wouldn't be uh, sad to have him come home. Yeah. Is that a fair trade in your mind, like a uh, an arms dealer for a basketball player? 
Like, or, like, I guess this is going to be high stakes negotiations that go on behind the scenes. Like you mentioned that you figured it could drag on for a while. I mean, look in a vacuum, it may not be a fair trade, but, but Brittany and Paul are two people who really have done nothing wrong and don't deserve yeah. to be languishing in an American jail or in a Russian jail. And, and so whatever it takes to bring them home, I mean, Boot has been in American prison for several years now. I'd, I'd prefer he stay here, but not at the price of having Brittany and Paul languish in Russia. Right. That nine year sentence that she got, just to go back to that for a moment, like, you know, it just seems like an outrageous sentence for, for cannabis resin or cannabis oil. You know, obviously, Russia's got different laws in America or Canada, but is that type of sentence consistent with like a drug offense in Russia? Or do you think she got a like a stiffer penalty just as part of the diplomatic fight here? I mean, Russian laws on on drugs are are more severe than than yours in Canada or ours in the States by a, a mile. So, you know, it's it's not altogether surprising. I believe the particular law they they claim she broke, the sentencing should be from anywhere from five to ten years. So, you know, wow. nine is obviously on the more severe side. And but still, like if they if if Russian authorities wanted to let her go or, you know, release her with a fine or they could have because that's how the judicial system works the decision comes on from on high in the kremlin to you know show leniency and the judge takes that message and and releases her they obviously weren't going to do that in britney's case because it's perfect leverage for for a, a prisoner swap so it's just really unfortunate all the circumstances surrounding her case yeah and just lastly i i think that she's shown a lot of courage and poise here in the in the few times we've seen her speaking in court and the clip that we just played but man what do you think's going through her mind or the or the minds of her family and her supporters i mean they must this is a scary situation like imagine being sent to like a russian gulag for years while this while this uh negotiation goes on hopefully it'd be they can secure her release quickly but like you said it could drag on for a while what do you think's going through her mind yeah, I mean, you nailed it. She really has shown just tremendous poise. And I can't imagine yeah. what's going through her head or her family's minds. I think the amount of attention that the Biden administration is paying to her case and the amount of support she's receiving from the American public, I would hope that that's providing her some sort of strength to know that her ordeal will end. It, it may not end tomorrow, but hopefully, I, I highly doubt she's going to serve nine years. I hope she serves yeah. much less than that and she comes home you know, as soon as possible. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that she's, you know, she has that sense of optimism too, that she knows this is being discussed at the highest levels yeah. of our two governments. David, thank you for your analysis today. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, let's keep discussing the Brittany Grimes case now. The WNBA basketball star sentenced in a Russian courtroom yesterday to nine years in jail on drug charges there are negotiations clearly underway now behind the scenes for a prisoner exchange between the united states and russia i've got marcus kolga standing by have a listen to this report from global news now on this uh, case have a listen the biden administration revealed a proposed prisoner swap with the kremlin that deal would free Greiner and Paul Whelan, a corporate executive from Michigan, serving a 16-year sentence in Russia on espionage charges in exchange for Victor Boot, a convicted arms smuggler known as the Merchant of Death. Every single day that Paul Whelan and Brittany Greiner remain behind bars, it is injustice compounded on itself. Uh, our goal is to see these cases 
uh, resolved just as soon as we can. As the voice of Ned Price there, a spokesperson for the U.S. State Department. Man, talk about some high-level diplomatic moves going on here. Let's discuss it now with Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Marcus, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Okay, Marcus, first of all, let's talk about the sentence that was handed down to Brittany Griner here, nine years on drug possession. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't come as any surprise to, to anyone who has been watching Vladimir Putin the past 20 years. Um, he's using uh, this uh, American two-time gold medal winning basketball star as, as a pawn. Um, she's yeah. not a prisoner. She's a hostage. Um, this is the sort of uh, tactic that Vladimir Putin is long engaged in. Um, and uh, the same goes for Paul Whelan, who's, uh, who's been in prison since uh, December of 2018. In fact, he was detained around the same time as the two Michaels. Uh, the story sort of slipped under the radar. But Paul Whelan is actually a Canadian. He was born in Canada. And so we also have a Canadian citizen uh, stuck as a hostage in, in uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, and this deal that's uh, being discussed with uh, with the Americans right now to have Victor Bout, um, he's a well-known, very high-profile arms dealer, an arms dealer to some of the worst uh, totalitarians and human rights abusers in the world, in the history of the world, in fact. Um, and he's known by the moniker the Merchant of Death. So yeah. um, the contrast between these, you know, the, the hostages, uh, a basketball star, a security contractor, and a a well-known arms trafficker uh, couldn't be more stark. Yeah, and you mentioned the two Michaels, and I think that springs to mind for a lot of people. I think many people will see the parallel between Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig, and their detention in China yeah. for more than a 1,000 days. They got their person back, Meng Wanzhou, was returned to China. The two Michaels were released. I don't think anyone really officially admitted that was a prisoner swap, but do you think that's what it effectively was at the end of the day? Absolutely. This is what yeah. these authoritarian regimes do. They, they nab foreign Western citizens and they use them to extract concessions. And whether it's a prisoner swap or something else, this is what happens. And I think that all Western citizens, especially Canadians, um, should be really reconsidering. If anyone is you know, planning on traveling to China or Russia uh, or doing business in any of either of those countries, you have to know that they don't play by the rules, these regimes. Um, they play hardball. They do kidnap Western citizens, um, they engage in corruption, and a country like Russia is nothing more than a terrorist mafia state. Um, so, you know, Canadians, all Western governments and citizens need to be aware of that. Yeah, and uh, Russia, and the breaking news on this file this morning is, is the Kremlin saying this morning that they're open to some sort of a prisoner deal or a prisoner exchange here. So obviously this is clearly underway at the highest levels between the two countries. This, this Victor Boot guy, this arms trafficker that the Russians want back, do you think that's a fair, a fair trade, like a convicted arms trafficker for a, like a basketball player? <laughs> well, there you have it. You just said it, right? I mean... Uh, we have a basketball player who had, who's been um, taken hostage, uh, detained, because she had a minuscule amount of marijuana oil in a vaporizer as she was exiting Russia. She wasn't coming into Russia. She was leaving Russia when she uh. was detained. Clearly, this was, a, you know, again, a hostage taking. You compare that to someone who has, like I said earlier, supplied arms to the worst human rights abusers in the history of the world, at least over yeah. the past number of decades. You know, you can't compare the two. Is it a fair trade? I don't know. I guess so. Um, somebody in, in Washington thinks it's a, it's a good idea. Someone in Moscow 
clearly thinks it's a, a great idea because there's Victor Bout. He's also a very close uh, friend of, of Vladimir Putin, and he's connected to Russian intelligence services. So it's no wonder that they, they want to get him back. He's got 30 seconds here, Marcus. You think this could drag on for a long time, like the two Michaels were locked up for over a thousand days. How, how long do you think this could drag on here? I don't think it's going to drag on very long. I think that they'll right. have a, a, a deal in place very shortly. Vladimir Putin wants his friend Victor back. Um, he needs Victor about to, uh, to get him arms because uh, Vladimir Putin, I mean, the, the war is not going well for him in Ukraine. He needs weapons. The blockade has been uh, uh, placed, uh, blockade on te- uh, technological exports to Russia has been placed. He's running out of weapons. So he needs someone like Victor Bout who can get around these sanctions and smuggle some weapons in for him. So there's, there's several reasons why Vladimir okay. Putin would want to get this done quickly. Thanks for coming on today. Anytime. Thanks, Mike.